Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode 101 of the Employment Law and HR Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Colley. I'm an employment solicitor and HR specialist, and I run the firm Real Employment Law Advice. We provide advice and assistance to employers and employees on all aspects of employment law. Thank you very much for tuning in to this week's podcast. After the last mini-series on grievances, I'm returning to answering questions and dealing with cases and just general updates for a few weeks. And in this week, I'm going to report to you about a case decision in the Employment Appeal Tribunal and a couple of updates, one on a question that I've been asked by a client and also on the tribunal system. So without further ado, I'm going to get into this week's featured content. So as I said earlier, I'm going to cover a couple of things in this week's podcast, which hopefully are of interest to you. The first thing I wanted to cover is in relation to my experience in the employment tribunal at the moment. You may have noticed that there have been a number of articles online and um, in the papers about the employment tribunal system. And for those of you who are in the know, you will know that last year, the Supreme Court ruled that employment tribunal fees were unlawful and as a result tribunal fees have been removed and it's resulted in an influx of cases, so a real increase in cases in the employment tribunal and that's been slowly trickling through and it's now really having an impact on the cases. What happened before fees were introduced was that there would be on occasions long delays but generally there were good resources and the resources to handle it. When fees were introduced, there was a big drop in the number of cases being dealt with by employment tribunals. And as you would expect, the number of resources, the number of staff, the judges available was reduced because there was a reduced workload. And unfortunately, that doesn't appear to have caught up with the increasing cases since the tribunal fees were removed. So rather than a quick turnaround of recruitment in response, it seems to be slow going, which has generally slowed down the whole process in the employment tribunal. And the reason that I mention this now is because I've recently had a case that I'm dealing with for a client, an employee client listed at Reading Employment Tribunal, and it has been listed for next year for a two hour preliminary hearing. And when I received notification, I was so surprised that I actually telephoned the tribunal to ask them if it was correct or if it was a typing error, because I thought to myself, how can it possibly be the case that there is such a delay for a two hour preliminary hearing? And if that's the delay for a two hour preliminary hearing, what would be the delay for a five day, for example, case for final hearing? And so that may just be extreme for the Reading Tribunal because I do deal with other tribunals. Most often I deal with Southampton and the delays there aren't at the moment as long as that and cases are being listed much quicker. But I just thought to myself, 
crikey, how can it be that we're now in a stage where somebody has to wait that long, so it will be a year from submitting the claim, to have a preliminary hearing? And then how long after that are they going to have to wait to have the final hearing? And quite rightly, it's going to cause all kinds of issues in terms of witness recollection and obtaining evidence and all of that sort of thing. So really we have to do a lot of front-loaded work now to ensure that statements are taken and evidence is gathered at this early stage until we know exactly when the employment tribunal is going to take place. So it's just something to note and I thought I would put it out there and I'd be interested to hear from anybody who listens to the podcast to hear what your thoughts are on the delays in the employment tribunal. As I say, certainly what's being reported is reported in the Law Gazette by other solicitors, other practitioners, and also um, there was a report in the Times and other things online about delays. So there's certainly delays taking place elsewhere in the country, but I just wanted to get an idea of what you think about it and if it's happening near you. And also just to put you on notice, because whilst it's prejudicial, certainly for employee clients, it's also going to have some impact on employers and how you deal with defending cases and having that hanging over you for such a long period of time, particularly for small businesses or particularly for managers who are named within employment tribunal proceedings, it can be very difficult and very stressful. So it's just something to note there. The second thing I wanted to mention in today's podcast is a question that was asked of me by a client recently. And I just thought, well, I'm going to just cover this in the in the podcast because it's a fairly quick answer but something to bring to your attention and they asked me the question of whether they can ask an employee who is pregnant and who has been taking sickness absence to fill in a sickness absence reporting form. So they have an employee who's pregnant and she's had um, various time off on occasions for sickness absence but they've been afraid to ask her to complete their sickness absence form which all other employees have to complete if they're off sick. And rather naively from my perspective, I hadn't realised that there was this fear over how to handle or deal with employees who are pregnant. And of course they can ask the employee to complete a form and I advise them that it would be prudent to do so because if you get the employee to fill out the form, you understand exactly what's the problem and why they're off sick. At the moment, it's very difficult to know exactly the reasoning behind it and it can obviously be monitored. So it's just to say that, yes, of course, you can ask questions of an employee who's pregnant about why they're off sick and you can ask them to complete the normal sickness absence reporting forms as you would anybody else. Now, if you have employees who are pregnant or on maternity leave within your organisation and if you find that your managers are struggling to deal with it, or are not sure on how to how to best handle issues that arise, then it's definitely worth getting some advice, maybe getting a little bit of training for your managers on how to deal with these sorts of situations and just giving them some reassurance about how they can handle things. And that's something that we deal with here at Real Employment Law Advice. If you'd like to discuss, we can either come to you and do the training or we can do it online over Skype. So if you want any more information, do get in touch. It's alison at realemploymentoradvice.co.uk. Now, finally, the third thing I'm going to talk to you about, and the main part of today's podcast, is a report on a case on unfair dismissal. So it's going back to reporting on a case, and it's a good old unfair dismissal case. 
Now, in this case, which is Mr. Barongo, and I apologise to Mr. Barongo if I'm saying his name wrong, and his employer was Quintal's Commercial UK Limited. And this is a case that has recently been decided by the Employment Appeal Tribunal. Now, Quintal's Commercial UK Limited supply sales staff to pharmaceutical companies. And they supplied Mr. Barongo to a company named AstraZeneca. Now, Mr. Barongo was employed by Quintiles as a medical sales rep. And he was employed from the 1st of October 2012 until the 5th of February 2016. So he was employed for just over three full years. Now, Mr. Barongo was dismissed by Quintiles on the 5th of January 2016 with notice. So that's why his employment went on until the 5th of February. He was given a month's notice and he was dismissed for two acts of misconduct. Now, the misconduct that he was dismissed for is for failing to complete an online training course. So compulsory training and failing to attend a compulsory training course that were put on by AstraZeneca. So it was a requirement of AstraZeneca that he undertook this online training course and a compulsory training course. And there was a timescale for completing them, which he failed to meet. Now, his employer considered that this was serious misconduct and they instigated the disciplinary proceedings. And Mr. Baronga admitted that he had failed to attend the courses. He'd failed to do them within time as he had been required to. He presented a various mitigation evidence and notably that he had been prioritising work commitments um, and various other things. His disciplinary, interestingly, was held by phone and this was agreed by Mr. Barongo ahead of the disciplinary hearing. But afterwards, he did note that he felt it had been prejudicial to him in the disciplinary hearing. But the outcome of the disciplinary was that he was dismissed and the manager dealing with the disciplinary decided that there had been a breakdown in trust and confidence as a result of his behaviour. As a result of that, he was dismissed on notice for what the manager considered to be gross misconduct. Now, Mr. Barongo appealed and at the appeal, it was held by a director. So someone more senior than the manager who dealt with it before. And as a result of the appeal, the decision to dismiss him was upheld, but the director said that it, rather than it being gross misconduct, he considered it to be serious misconduct. But in any event, it didn't affect the finding that there had been a breakdown in trust and confidence as a result of Mr. Barongo's behaviour. Following the appeal decision, Mr. Barongo decided to bring a claim in the Employment Tribunal for unfair dismissal. His case was that he had been given no previous warnings for any conduct issues and that as the finding had been that it was serious misconduct, he shouldn't have actually been dismissed and that it wasn't fair or reasonable to dismiss him for just serious misconduct rather than gross misconduct. The Employment Tribunal agreed with Mr Brongo and decided that if, as the director had found at the appeal stage, it was serious rather than gross misconduct, they should have applied a series of warnings before deciding to dismiss him. The Employment Tribunal said that the issue was whether dismissal was a sanction that was open to a reasonable employer in these circumstances. And they decided that 
because it was serious misconduct rather than gross, it would be reasonable to give him warnings and they should have given him warnings. Although they found in Mr. Barongo's favour that he had been unfairly dismissed, they decided to reduce his compensation by one third due to his unprofessional conduct and him being guilty of serious misconduct. So although they said it was unfair, they did acknowledge what Mr. Barongo had done and how he had contributed to his situation and reduced his compensation. Quintiles Commercial UK appealed against the Employment Tribunal decision and the matter was dealt with by the Employment Appeal Tribunal. The basis of the appeal was that the Employment Tribunal had reached a conclusion that it was unfair dismissal because no warnings had been given. Obviously, Mr. Brongo disagreed with this and the Employment Appeal Tribunal upheld the employer's appeal and agreed with the employer. They acknowledged that dismissal is capable of being fair if it is a reason related to conduct and that's set out in section 98.2 of the Employment Rights Act. In this case, the reason for Mr. Brongo's dismissal was his conduct and it had been wrong of the Employment Tribunal to automatically state and assume that because it was serious misconduct rather than gross misconduct that there should have been warnings before. What the Employment Tribunal should have done is to have analysed the test of reasonableness which is set out in section 98.4 of the Employment Rights Act and that says, I'll just read it to you, The determination of the question whether the dismissal is fair or unfair, having regard to the reason shown by the employer, depends on whether in the circumstances, including the size and administrative resources of the employer's undertaking, the employer acted reasonably or unreasonably in treating it as a sufficient reason for dismissing the employee and shall be determined in accordance with equity and the substantial merits of the case. What the Appeal Tribunal had decided was the tribunal at first instance had not considered this question when deciding whether the dismissal was fair or not. They hadn't applied what's known as the band of reasonableness tests and whether it was reasonable in all the circumstances to dismiss Mr. Barongo for this reason. They had merely decided that because no warnings were given it was unfair. The Employment Appeal Tribunal acknowledged that An employment tribunal may find, in most cases, dismissal without prior warnings for just serious misconduct could be unfair. It was not always the case and they shouldn't assume that it would be. And so they decided to uphold the employer's appeal and return the case to the employment tribunal to reconsider the issue of fairness under Section 98.4 of the Employment Rights Act. So just to summarise, what this means is that it's not necessarily the case, in every case, that it would be unfair to dismiss somebody for the lesser categorisation of conduct of serious misconduct rather than gross if you haven't given a warning before, but that an employment tribunal should determine the test of reasonableness, as I read out under section 98.4, rather than just looking at whether warnings were given or not. It wasn't as simple as saying it's not reasonable to dismiss for that reason if no warnings have been given. So this is an interesting case for employers and I'm often asked by people whether they can just dismiss an employee if it's something serious but doesn't quite tip into that gross misconduct view and it's quite helpful in understanding that actually it doesn't necessarily matter whether warnings have been given for an employer 
I would always advise to consider giving warnings first as it will help you in relation to that test of reasonableness that will be considered in section 98.4 of the Employment Rights Act. So we don't know what the Employment Tribunal will determine when they review the decision and they will have to look at all the circumstances of the case and whether it was right and reasonable for the employer in these circumstances to dismiss for this allegation. So we'll wait to see what they actually say once they've reconsidered it. But it is an interesting point to note and certainly doesn't necessarily mean you can't dismiss somebody if you haven't given them warnings if it's something serious. What I think would be important to note is somewhere within your disciplinary procedure that you note that in the case of serious misconduct that you may dismiss an employee without giving previous warnings if in the circumstances the person making the decision considers that that would be the reasonable outcome. It will help you to a degree in defending any claim for unfair dismissal if you needed to if it's already set out in your disciplinary process. Of course it's not going to get round this test of reasonableness and the justification for dismissal. So I hope that you found that case interesting and I'll certainly be looking out to see once it's returned to the Employment Tribunal, um, of course if it gets back to the Tribunal before being settled or resolved elsewhere, then I will let you know what the decision is. And of course if you find yourself in a situation where you're not sure whether to dismiss somebody for misconduct or not and you'd like some advice, then that's certainly the kind of thing that we can help with and we help people with on a daily basis. So do get in touch. My email is alison at realemploymentoradvice.co.uk. As I said at the beginning of the show, and as you may already know, I do run the firm Real Employment or Advice, and we do provide advice to employers. We also offer an ongoing monthly retained advice service for employers, where you pay a fixed monthly fee and we provide you with advice and assistance as you require, as well as proactive advice in helping you get your policies, procedures, processes and training up together for your staff and managers and also to help you to be a better employer. If you'd like more information, you can find it on our website, which is advicefromemployers.co.uk or I would be happy to have a no obligation chat with you. You can contact me again by email, which is alison at realemploymentoradvice.co.uk or on our head office number, which is 01983 897 Many thanks for listening. I hope that you found this episode helpful, interesting and useful. And of course, if you have any suggestions, then please do get in touch. And I look forward to speaking to you again in two weeks time. Thanks again for listening. Just want to finalise by saying I wouldn't be a lawyer unless I had a legal disclaimer. So I must just say to you, that the information in this podcast is for information only. It's general review and a general update. It's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances. So please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast. But please do feel free to contact me if you'd like further information or specific advice.